Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 19th, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on, after we discuss the domestic political landscape with Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones, we're going to be joined by Dennis Staunton to hear about the increasingly precarious nature of Boris Johnson's position in 10 Downing Street. But before we get into all that, we have a rare visit from my colleague Roshan Ingle. Hi, Roshan. Hi, Hugh. This is very exciting. I think it's your first visit. You're, you're, you are most, you are most welcome. As our listeners probably know, Roisin is an Irish Times feature writer and columnist. She also presents the Irish Times women's podcast and she is also the driving force and the inspiration behind what has become an, an annual, a biannual actual series of events. Summer nights in the summer, as you'd expect, and winter nights in the winter where we are now. And the latest winter nights for that reason is happening next week. Tell us about it. Well, there's loads. Um, I'll, I'll just name a couple because you're involved in a couple and you can talk about those. Helen, and McIntyre is joining us for the opening event. I think that's going to be a, a really great conversation between the, the next T-shock. Or the, after the next T-shock, the second next yeah, T-shock. We were going to call it the next T-shock, but then we decided we better not do that. Um, but yeah, Helen McIntyre and Jennifer Bray are going to be talking. And I think in the wake of Ashling Murphy's funeral, I know Helen McIntyre was there. I think it'll be a very interesting conversation about her new policy uh, against gender-based violence. So that's going to be very interesting. We have David McWilliams talking to Cliff Taylor about the post-pandemic economy. I'm being very optimistic there, you, with my post-pandemic. Um, we also have Dr. Mike Ryan, who everyone will know. There's a lot of culture in it too. Annie Mack, um, the former BBC Radio 1 DJ, is going to be talking to Patrick Frayne. And then also I'm going to be talking to Paul Muldoon, which I'm very excited about. He's the Armagh poet who spent five years exploring Paul McCartney's vast oeuvre and produced this incredible book called Lyrics, uh, which is fantastic. So we also have Brian O'Driscoll. We've got Ellen Keane. So loads. And you can talk about your things that you're doing. Yeah, I'm going to be talking to David Baddiel, the well-known British uh, comedian and writer, about his latest book, which is called Jews Don't Count, which is an exploration of contemporary anti-Semitism and how he sees it as being on the rise in in British society and indeed more widely. And it's it's quite a, uh, it, it really is, it's a book that forced me to think about a number of things and I look forward to going that through that with him. And the other one uh, I'm doing is with a little-known Irish Times journalist called, uh, called Fintan O'Toole. Uh, and of course, Fintan um, published his his sort of magnum opus in a way last year, this kind of autobiographical history of, of contemporary Ireland through his own eyes since his birth in, I think, 1958. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to talking to him about that. And also, to be honest, Roisin, don't tell him, but trying to draw out a bit more of the personal elements in the book as well. I think our listeners might be particularly interested in that. Ooh, get a bit of goss there, Hugh. That's what I want. You know, I'm very fascinated in in all things, by all things Finton. So that would be great. I'm looking forward to it. I also should mention our final event is Catlin Moran with Cathy Sheridan, which I think is going to be brilliant. So will I let everyone know how they can buy tickets? Please do. Okay. irishtimes.com forward slash winter nights. Uh, all the details are there. And I really think, you know, the great thing is that people can join them live on the night or they can watch them back because everything's made available. So if you miss some, you, you don't miss anything. 
Thanks, Roisin. I'm really looking forward to participating in that. And it's great to have you on. We should have you on. So we should have you on again. We won't do, wait another do, 17 years or whatever it is. We'll definitely have you on again. But uh, thanks, Roisin. We're really looking forward to that. Now, as promised, I'm joined by Jennifer Bray and Jock Horgan-Jones from our political staff. Um, and as Roisin mentioned there, Jen, Ashling Murphy, the shadow of that killing still hangs over the country. And uh, it's the focus of this morning's newspapers. Uh, the funeral was yesterday, as we know, the, the young woman murdered last week in County Offaly. It'll be on the agenda when the doll returns today. But I suppose my question today is from a political point of view, what, if anything, concrete is likely to come out of that? And what's coming, would that have come anyway? In other words, has Ashley Murphy's um, murder changed anything? The strategy was planned anyway. So this is a domestic, sexual and gender-based violence strategy. When Helen McEntee uh, became the Minister for Justice, she did outline a number of priorities for her and, and this strategy was one of them. So I think it was initiated probably uh, this time last year or just in and around a year ago. And the death of Ashley Murphy has definitely lit a fire, I think, under officials in different departments because this will have to be a whole of government thing um, and really, you know, got the impetus uh, to, to get this plan published as soon as possible. So what they're looking at now is to publish it in spring. And I think there is a lot of questions at the moment about exactly what will it entail. What they've said so far is the Department of Justice. And it's actually important to like understand that the biggest problem previously in terms of different services in the sector has been that nobody really understands who is ultimately responsible for these policies, who has the overarching uh, monitoring, for example. I think what we'll see is the Department of Justice take that responsibility on board in March and outline a new structure for exactly who reports to who and which services can connect with each other. Because a big criticism also has been that different services don't speak to each other. So You know, you you think, for example, of homelessness services, not talking to welfare services, community services, not talking to, uh, you know, legal services, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, getting that interconnectivity. So what the department have said is that they'll base it on the four principles of the Istanbul Convention. The Istanbul Convention is this human rights treaty from the Council of Europe. And it's the, the aim of it is to prevent and eliminate all forms of violence against women. So if we were to give examples of what that actually means, um, they haven't given that many, they haven't given that much detail yet. But from what I understand, it will look at, you know, a national campaign on consent. So that will be launched in spring along with the plan. Um, it will look at the right of protecting. We mentioned protection there for victims. So when we when we talk about protection, we're talking about stuff like refuge spaces. And the issue of refuge spaces has been, it hasn't been properly looked at effectively over the last couple of years. And we've seen there's a real lack of refuge spaces for women in different parts of the country. Sometimes it can be a postcode lottery. So they'll look at that as well. And they'll also look at the O'Malley report, which gave recommendations about how to protect vi- victims of sexual violence during the investigation and prosecution of sexual offences. So that report had a number of recommendations. This plan will outline how those will actually become reality, you know, things uh, like preliminary trial hearings uh, by video link. And finally, what I would say about it as well is there was an audit released summer last year and it kind of went under the radar because of COVID, but it was really, really eye-opening. It was commissioned by the Department of Justice. It was carried out by external consultants. And what they found was that across the different structures, across the different parts of government agencies and government departments that deal with this policy, there is distrust, disrespect, othering and blaming amongst those people working in the sector. And it was, you know, it, I went back and reminded myself of it yesterday it didn't ring the alarm bells, it should have at the time, but I think reading it now, it really should. Why is that so bad? 
why is it so bad that there's distrust? Yeah, why is it so toxic between those between those departments? So I think if you drill down into it, there seems to be a lot of distrust, like they say, between organisations like Tusla and organisations that aren't maybe funded in the same manner, you know, NGOs, um, because, you know, these organisations are trying to access funding at the same, same time as there's state funded organisations as well. And there's kind of they're being pitted against each other a lot. There's no real clarity around how that funding uh, often there's no real clarity around how that funding is allocated to different organisations, for example, looking after women, uh, domestic abuse victims. Um, and there's this culture whereby different parts of the sector don't talk to each other and they don't believe what the, each other saying. It's also being this real problem. So this is the third strategy. This would be in March. The second strategy was not popular amongst any of these organisations. And one of the biggest criticisms has been that it set out, and I read it last night, it was actually quite short, but um, it, it set out different plans and action plans. And the criticism was that it got so bogged down in the detail. There was no overarching strategy here. And nobody knew who exactly was supposed to be making sure that all these things happened. And there was a monitoring committee. And one of the things that was said to this audit last year was that people weren't turning up to the committee or people weren't listening or there was a lot of waffling going on. Um, and it was a bit of a talking shop. And, you know, there was one um, particularly eye-catching uh, comment made by somebody where they talked about some government departments um, box ticking. And they said that, you know, for example, the Department of Education have a really big role to play in terms of consent and teaching younger people, you know, to kind of erase these societal cultures uh, in school aged children. And that the Department of Education was simply ticking boxes and not wasn't really interested in the actual plan itself and the strategy that was said to uh, by a participant to that audit last summer. So those are kind of just a flavour of the issues. I mean, it really is there are deep seated issues there. And I think the big challenge for the government this time will be to set in place um, a structure uh, that will clearly outline who is responsible for what, what will be achieved when, and make these sectors and sections accountable and say what happens if you don't. And that hasn't been done before. Well, that's very interesting and very telling in, in lots of ways. And it's, it's a subject we should return to in more detail when that strategy is published, which is in March. Is that is that right? Or that's what the, they're looking at, March. And I'd say they're under a lot of pressure now to make sure uh, that they do stick to their timelines on this. Yeah. Right. And it's a, a, a extremely grave uh, and, and, and serious matter. Moving to a, a somewhat less grave, somewhat serious matter. This, I, I hate the words champagne gate, um, Jack, but that's the name that this event, which took place in the Department of Foreign Affairs when um, civil servants were celebrating Ireland's election to the UN Security Council during the first lockdown in, in early 2020, um, has been, uh, that's the name it's been given. Um, it doesn't seem to be going away, does it? Is it still going to trail on for the next one? Doesn't seem to be going away. Um, actually, maybe we should we should put the appendage on onto onto Coveney. And um, this is Coveney Gate Mark Two. You know, <laughs> Zappone Gate during the summer was Coveney Gate Mark One. Maybe that's the, the easier way to delineate them because a lot of the kind of the political import of this is is kind of coming to rest around perceptions about the effectiveness, the judgment, or um, the kind of you know the political scale of the former tarnish of Simon Coveney, both in this instance. And around the Zapongate um, controversy last summer, I think that this is probably of a different order to what happened with Catherine Zapone. Um, I think that it's probably not travelling amongst the wider public in the same way that the Zapone controversy did. And it's certainly not travelling amongst the wider public in the way the previous controversies that kind of centred around politicians' compliance with COVID rules or political elites' compliance with COVID rules have done most obviously Golfgate 
so I don't think it's I don't think it's really landed with the public in the same way, and it's certainly not landed with the public in the way that the uh, controversies over parties in Downing Street uh, have done so in the UK. And I think that's probably because most people can kind of see there is an order of difference between what is described to have happened in Ivy House and the kind of party culture that seems to have sprung up over the lockdown months in Downing Street. And they can see that there is a clear delineation there. Um, so I'm not sure that it's it's has caught fire or will caught fire as a kind of voter issue. That's not to say that, you know, it, it's not an issue of import within political circles. And we've already touched on how it's an issue for Simon Coveney in particular. And it marks yet another step, I think, in the transition from Simon Coveney being seen as a very effective, sober minded and um, a politician with, with a good sense of judgment who was able to handle tricky issues, most clearly seen in how he was assigned and dealt with the Brexit brief, but also going back to how he acted and handled controversies and scandals when he was in previous positions. And, you know, throw your mind back to the horsemeat scandal, which he was seen to handle very well earlier on in his career. He's now, I think, seen, and I think that this is another uh, issue, you know, where he's seen as being detached and, um, you know, if it's not Gate, it's his patronage of kind of posh boat races uh, in, in Cork and or it's, or it's something like this, all of which plays to his weaknesses as a politician and, you know, plays to this kind of sense that, you know, this could have been avoided or handled better through better political judgment. So I think amongst people in government and people of the political mainstream, it weakens him. The final and third, and and perhaps you know the reason why we're talking about this uh, element is you know how the opposition see this as an opportunity, and Sinn Fein in particular have a very good playbook on stuff like this, and it's the same playbook effectively that they ran during the Zappone Gate. It's like a mini version of that, which culminated in the vote of confidence in Simon Coveney. They can't do that again, and, and I don't think they would because it's not of that order. But I think we're seeing a similar kind of approach. You know, they're Pick, pick, picking away at this scandal there. Having um, Coveney in before the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, I know that's not just Sinn Féin, but you know, it, it, they, they are the opposition party that is setting the pace on this. They're going to try, I would imagine, to have other officials in before the Foreign Affairs Committee. And it, just, and it just does play into, I think, even though most voters are probably indifferent or you know, at, at best kind of amused by this, I think that Sinn Féin voters in particular... This plays to political themes that resonate with them, i.e., you know, there are elites, they are in Ivy House, they're having champagne parties and they're laughing at you. And the kind of greatest, greatest signifier or the greatest, most most visible symbol of this is this kind of patrician, um, you know, merchant prince from Cork, Simon Coveney. So I think that's that. That's why it's of, of political import. That's why we're still talking about it, even though I don't think it has or will cross the Rubicon to being full bore political scandal. But it's not surprising at all that the opposition would take advantage of this perceived weakness. And why, Jennifer, do you think Simon Coveney has become this clear point of weakness in the government? I mean, it's not that long ago that he almost won the Fine Gael leadership. And that was on the basis of, you know, a pretty good political reputation, including, as I remember, being definitely the most popular candidate among the actual rank and file uh, Fine Gael membership. Um, is there something about the rarefied air of the Department of Foreign Affairs, you know, no matter how successful one may be, one is, uh, you know, one, one is swimming in different political waters than, than if we're, when we're down, down and dirty in domestic Irish politics? I love that you just gave me my answer. Yes, it is the rarefied air in the Department of Foreign Affairs. <laughs> the Department of, Rar- uh, Department of Rarefied Airs, that's what we'll call 
call it. Um, uh, yeah, do you know what? I think he's been um, very unlucky. Obviously, you mentioned the Gael Leadership Contest. Yes, he had, uh, you know, he, he obviously he didn't win, um, but he did have the support of the grassroots and, and many people in the party. And he was quite popular um, amongst uh, the grassroots, obviously. I think since then, I think he's, he's been very unfortunate with a number, a number of diff- different issues. And I think mainly what he's failed to do is to foresee what will and will not be a political controversy, which would indicate maybe that he's a little bit out of touch uh, or possibly a lot out of touch because, you know, I thought it was extraordinary when they uh, made this decision to appoint Catherine Zappone that they wouldn't have foreseen that this could be an issue. Um, And obviously it's a massive issue. And now this issue, I mean, in a way, you know, this is kind of nothing to do with him and that he didn't really, he didn't plan this party. He didn't initiate it. He didn't buy the champagne, all this kind of stuff. But he did pop in. And what he's been guilty of is drip feeding information. You know, it took a long time for journalists to figure out, was he, did he pop into this uh, gathering? How long did he spend there? And that drip feeding was something which we kind of saw in the Catherine Sapone thing as well. It's kind of the worst thing you can do in a controversy is to drip feed information to the media because it just amplifies it and it drags the story on for far longer than perhaps it needs to be dragged on. You're best off just coming out and saying, here's exactly what happened, here's exactly where I was and here's what I did and so be it with the consequences. But that's not how it works in Irish policy. So I think if he's been guilty of anything, it's of failing to see political controversies uh, in the off and failing to head them off and... And, and then drip feeding uh, info. So that's kind of all his own doing rather than the rarefied air of the Department of Affairs. Well, it, it's funny you should say that because as Jack said, one of the, I think one of the reasons this has gained purchase in, in, in recent weeks because is because of what's happening across the water where it actually threatens the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson. And on that very subject, uh, Dennis Staunton joins us with the latest from, from London. Dennis, good morning. Good morning, Hugh. Before Christmas, we had the sausage wars. This morning, I'm hearing about a pork pie putsch. What is it about the diet that, that Tories are living on these days? I think it's more about the silly names they give to everything. So it's uh, one of the MPs uh, of the 2019 intake that was plotting uh, to bring down Boris Johnson yesterday. Was uh, She represents Melton Mowbray, which is the home of the pork pie, uh, which you may or may not know anyway. And so is the pork pie coup and the pork pie plotters. Uh, but yes, yeah, so so this group of uh, 2019 MPs, not all of them from the Red Wall, most of them from the Red Wall, they got together uh, yesterday and uh, started working out whether they were going to start sending letters into the 1922 committee of backbenchers asking for a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson. You need 54 letters demanding that to get a vote of confidence. And uh, so uh, some of them, it seems, have decided they're going to send these letters in today. Some are going to wait until a report into the various parties by the senior civil servant, Sue Gray. And so, uh, but it's certainly, uh, these numbers of letters are going up. So there seems to be a widespread consensus across British media this morning, Dennis, that it, either in the next day or so or immediately after Sue Gray delivers her report, unless there's something shockingly exonerating of, of Boris Johnson in, the, in that report, that there, there will be a confidence vote. Do you think that's right? Yes, I mean, that's certainly the way it's looking now. I mean, there had been until maybe a week or so ago, the conventional wisdom had been that uh, that MPs would wait until after the May local elections to see what would happen. But obviously, there's pressure from those parts of England where they're having local elections. There's pressure from local Conservative councillors to say, you know, why are you waiting until after I lose my seat? Why don't you actually do something now so that I might keep my seat? And so, uh, you know, you're getting a lot of this. And I think the other problem for Boris Johnson is that the opposite 
opposition to him is coming from all wings of the party. It's not just from those people who never liked him. It's not just from the people in the south, uh, in the southeast of England who are mostly threatened by liberal Democrats for whom he's not great. It's not just the Scottish Conservatives where he's toxic in Scotland. And now the problem is that it's the red wall. And there's an opinion poll from Channel 4 News out tonight. They'll be broadcasting it, which shows that he has effectively lost the red wall, those seats that uh, the Conservatives gained from Labour in 2019. If he stays as Prime Minister, according to this poll, the Tories would lose them all if there was an election today. And what's more damaging, I think, maybe for him from that poll and from others is evidence that Rishi Sunak is much more popular, that actually Rishi Sunak is not only more popular than Boris Johnson or that any or than any of the other possible... Uh, uh, rivals for the Conservative leadership, but also more popular than Keir Starmer. And uh, and Rishi Sunak, of all of the uh, potential leadership candidates, also polls pretty well in Scotland. He's one of the few Conservative politicians who's actually reasonably popular up there. Although, of course, the election is not amongst people who are voting in red wall seats. It's among, first of all, MPs and then the um, and then the broader party to some extent, should there be a full contest, because it's a sort of a it's a it's a two step process. And the first one is this confidence vote. And, and we, we, I mean, we recall in recent history, I think Theresa May um, faced one of these and she saw it off. But even if you see it off, it's usually very weakening. I seem to recall way back in the 90s, John Major had one uh, had one, too, and it had a similar kind of effect on his prime ministership. Is Boris Johnson kind of done for no matter what happens? I think that's certainly the feeling around Westminster now, this week, is that, uh, you know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so it's possible, as you say, that there's a confidence vote, that he wins that confidence vote. You need 181 of the 360 to decide to get rid of him, for him to lose it. But at the same time, if a very substantial number in his own parliamentary party vote against him, he's terribly weakened. And, you know, people keep going on about this rule in the Conservative rule book that if you have a challenge now, you can't have another one for 12 months. But in fact, you can make life impossible. You know, the, the, you know, the reality is that if you've lost the confidence of your parliamentary party, you've lost it and they'll find a way uh, of getting rid of you if uh, if that's what has to happen. So I think that if it goes to a vote, he's probably in a very difficult position because either he would lose it and that's possible or he would win it by an unconvincing margin and that would destabilize his leadership. And it's also just very hard to see how he comes back from where he is, how he recaptures the magic that he had a couple of years ago. Yes, because there was a there was a very striking interview which he gave yesterday with Beth Rigby of, of Sky, I think. And really, you know, I mean, one can read too much into these things, but he looked like a diminished figure in that interview. Yeah, he looked defeated. I mean, there's uh, one of the things that people who know him will tell you about Boris Johnson is that he has got a rather sort of dark, almost depressive side to him, that he's somebody, he's something of a loner. And he's, uh, you know, one of the ironies of all of this party gate and the idea of him being brought down by parties is that he's somebody who doesn't like parties. He doesn't like going to parties. He's not that kind of person. And but there is, uh, you know, he is somebody who apparently does, uh, you know, take things quite personally. He doesn't like not being liked. I think that, again, anybody you speak to who knows him well will say this is the kind of moment that would make him very, very unhappy. And I think it's, you know, the pressure is so enormous. And part of the problem, of course, is that they, they try to fight back this week. This was called in the newspapers Operation Red Meat. And it was a number of, uh, of initiatives which were designed to hit the spots that uh, conservatives care about. So there was the idea that you put the Royal Navy in charge of trying to push back the migrant boats of refugees coming from uh, France. And as soon as that was 
it was put out, it just dissolved, really, because there was some talk that they might send these people to Ghana. Ghana said, nothing we know about, and by the way, if you ask us, we're going to say no, and we find it offensive that you would brief in this way. And also, uh, you know, they didn't really think through what would the Navy do. In the same way, there was uh, talk of the BBC licence fee. They're going to freeze the licence fee for two years and then raise it in line with inflation. And then Nadine Dorries was suggesting that that would be the end. They would then abolish it. But this went too far for some cabinet ministers. So that's been kind of uh, rode back a little bit. So even the operation to try to save him is a shambles. And it's not impressing Conservative MPs. And it doesn't appear to be uh, impressing the Conservative membership, who are also very important, as you say, in this. Well, I suppose one of the reasons for that is because this is really not a not a quarrel or not a loss of confidence because of policy. It's because of personality and leadership, unlike previous heaves against Major and May, which may have been personalised, but there were real points of difference within the party, usually on Europe, um, as it happens. So that's not the case here. They have just lost faith in him as an individual and there are various assertions about his character and whether he can be believed. And as we know, there's long history about, about all those kinds of things. But it does beg the question of what kind of Conservative Party leadership we might have by the end of the year then. Well, if Boris Johnson goes, I think that's the end of the revolutionary period of Brexit. Uh, That kind of ended, in a way, with the departure of the Vote Leave gang from Downing Street, uh, Dominic Cummings and his allies. But uh, David Frost and Boris Johnson remained as remnants. And also there was a kind of you know, they both embraced what you might call the volatility of the means that you can, uh, you could deploy various, uh, you know, rather unconventional weapons like triggering Article 16, you know, unilateral action, all of this. So I think that if you were to, uh, if you were to go, if you look at the two main contenders, uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, both of them voted three times for Theresa May's deal. So they're backing Brexit. But they were not part of that revolutionary, uh, radical rebel element, uh, which put Boris Johnson into power, which defenestrated her and put him in there. So it wouldn't, what you wouldn't see, I think, is a restoration of uh, a pre-Brexit or a Cameroonian Conservative Party. But you would see, I think, more conventional leadership, a more conventional Conservative Party and an end to some of the populism. I think there's also then, uh, an electoral calculation. And that would be, if you're, if some seats are at risk, which are the ones that you really want to defend? And if Boris Johnson was the uh, magic potion that helped them to win the red wall seats, I think that perhaps if they go with either of those contenders, then uh, what they would be doing would be shoring up the traditional conservative seats down here and possibly trying to do a bit better in Scotland or at least shore those up and then hoping for the best in a way in the red wall. There are some of those seats that perhaps should have gone to the Conservatives for demographic reasons earlier than they did. There are others where they're hanging on by a wing and a prayer where in fact uh, the Conservative vote didn't really rise very much but the Labour Party voters stayed at home and partly because of Jeremy Corbyn and other factors. And so I think that you would see you know, not, uh, you know, it certainly isn't Andrew Adonis, this uh, uh, Labour peer who's very pro-European. He suggested the end of Boris was the end of Brexit. That's definitely not true. But I think it means that Brexit moves into a different phase and Britain and the governance of Britain returns to something which is more conventional, I think, within its history and within uh, the environment in which Britain is. Is all this ultimately down to the fact that Boris Johnson 
made the stupid mistake of allowing spinning against Dominic Cummings once Dominic Cummings left Downing Street and that set in train everything? Or is that, I mean, I know there's compl- there's, there's more complexity than that, but is that kind of at the core of, of what's happened here? I think it's part of it. But I do think, though, that if you look at uh, at what's been happening, Boris Johnson's popularity and the popularity of the Conservative Party has been declining since last summer. And there have been, you know, there was this high point at the Conservative Party conference where people said he was in world king mode, where he appeared to be unassailable. And when you actually had serious people saying he could be in power for 10 years. And he gave this uh, after dinner speech, really, as his Conservative Party leader speech, which was just off the cuff old nonsense, really. And they all said it was great. And then there were were a number of acts of carelessness. But what I think these did really was that, of course, they annoyed people, the Owen Patterson affair, various other things. But they also just reinforced this gathering view around the place that this guy is good at campaigning, but he's not good at governing. He doesn't like it. He's not interested in the detail. uh, And he is bored by the detail of governing. And so that, in a sense, Boris Johnson has done the job that the Conservative Party hired him to do. He united, he reunited the right of British politics. He uh, won an election massively and unexpectedly, and he uh, got Brexit done in his own terms. And so he's actually done what uh, what they asked him to do. And now maybe they just need somebody else to do something else, which is govern the country and make sure that they can do reasonably well in the next election. Fascinating. It's a fascinating turnaround. I'm sure we'll be discussing it again. But we'll let you go for the moment there, Dennis. Thanks very much for joining us. Stick with us. We'll be looking at the potential end of COVID restrictions after this. And you're welcome back. I, I'm still slightly gobsmacked by what we were discussing about Boris Johnson there. It's just the most astonishing turnaround that I can remember in uh, in the narrative of a, of a political career. Jack, what do you make of it before we move on to the next subject? I think that's right. I think that um, what will be really interesting to see um, is, is can, can the Conservative Party identify, and Dennis was touching on this a little bit um, when he spoke about the, the broad popularity of Rishi Sunak, but I think just because he polls well, perhaps in Scotland and the Red Wall and so on, it doesn't necessarily mean he can kind of recreate the electoral alchemy that Boris Johnson was so good at. So, you know, if this is the end of Boris Johnson, even though it may not, and most most certainly won't, uh, precipitate a general election, will the Conservative Party be in a position to kind of hold together that kind of bizarre coalition of voters that Johnson won in 2019? So... You know, is this a, a broader threshold moment for uh, British politics? And, you know, the other thing to recall is that the Conservatives have been in power for uh, an awfully long time now. So perhaps to win 2019, they needed that kind of, you know, that, that kind of one-off electoral aberration that could only be brought together by a figurehead leader, a campaigning leader like Boris Johnson. And, you know, the natural swing is away from the Conservative Party, even though they had such a win, such a big win in 2019. And, you know, perhaps in the, against that backdrop, we'll be seeing, um, we'll be seeing an electoral loss for the Conservatives next time out if they can't recreate that magic. Right. Our own government has its own, uh, its own challenges. Um, the Neffet meets tomorrow and the government will meet after that, either before the weekend or immediately afterwards. And really, uh, Jen, there's only one item on the agenda. When are these bloody restrictions going to be lifted? When indeed, but it looks like uh, ASAP is the answer. So yeah, Neffet will meet Thursday and Cabinet will meet again Friday, as far as I know, that hasn't changed. And then we'll have, I don't know whether we'll have an address to nation 
we probably will actually from Michal Martin, even though I think we're all sick of them. But anyway, um, so I think w- what it looks like now is that they will look, they'll seek to ease those restrictions um, as quickly as they can. So the first thing to go will probably be the 8pm closing time for hospitality um, and those kind of limits on indoor events and then outdoor events. I don't know whether that'd be the same time or immediately afterwards. And effectively, what we're looking at long term picture, um, Leo Varadkar outlined last night at a meeting of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, where he said that his hope would that all those would be that all those main legal restrictions would be gone by March 31st, albeit maybe not the masks, because the view in government is that it's actually not that much of an imposition and uh, upon people and that actually, you know, it's still a very effective measure um, regardless. So we could see that for a little while longer. Um, of course, all of this is caveated in the fact that the numbers continue to go down and this continues to go in the right direction, that there isn't a new variant of concern that is severe um, and also what happens if there is a second Omicron wave. But as things stand right now, it is the most optimistic that I have heard politicians since the start of the pandemic. You hearing the same, Jack? Yes, uh, short answer. Um, people are talking about uh, end games and, you know, the end of COVID as we know it. And you see that um, you see that on social media and the media. And to a certain extent, that's uh, creeping across in, into government. Uh, and you talk to ministers who do use these terms now. And I think that's interesting in and of itself. I don't think it's fully, I don't think that philosophy is fully imbibed within the Department of Health yet. I don't think the Minister for Health thinks like that. I certainly don't think that the Chief Medical Officer thinks like that. But um, while the kind of health mainstream or the the kind of centres of health power, health policy power in government um, don't think like that, I do think that they identify or have identified a shift in how we're managing the pandemic. we managed to engineer an enormous wall of immunity just as Omicron arrived. And the way in which Omicron hit us over the kind of Christmas and New Year period means that that, uh, that immunity, that vaccine immunity, has now been supplemented by a large amount of acquired immunity and that that has happened at what is seen to be an acceptable inverted commas, price uh, vis-a-vis hospitalizations, ICU admissions and, and deaths. Um so I think that that fundamentally changes uh, changes the approach at the start of 2022 in a way that differs to a large degree from where we were at the start of 2021. At the start of 2021, we were hit with that big alpha wave. We were hit with the big socialization wave from Christmas. And we had to effectively hunker down and wait, as we know, the long march out of, out of that lockdown and wait for vaccines to, 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 to tick up. Uh, things are very different this year. And I think that we will see a switch to the kind of uh, way of living that we eventually arrived at towards the kind of tail end of last summer into September and October last year. And I think it'll happen remarkably quickly. I think in a, in a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be back where we were in October with nightclubs open, with you know no social distancing in a lot of venues. And I think that we'll be going into this switch to kind of summertime mode, for want of a better a better description uh, sometime in February. Um, now, I think that it's important to note as well, though, that like this isn't necessarily the end of the pandemic. Some of the some of the risk factors that coalesced at the tail end of last year and forced us back into a kind of lockdown light still exist. Jen has spoken already about the possibility of the emergence of a new variant of concern, but also that kind of weird mix of immunity 
Omicron and whatever Delta is left uh, knocking around the place and how that interacts with waning immunity from vaccines in particular, which may only be 10 or 12 weeks and further booster programs. They're all complicating, if not confounding factors as we move through the spring and summer. But short answer, it may not be over, but yes, there are grounds for optimism. Yes, uh, things are going to be very different in the in the period ahead. And that has important political upshots as well, because it does suggest that COVID will slide off the uh, off the agenda as the default kind of top of the news front page lead in a way that it did very briefly for a couple of weeks last uh, last summer and autumn. But reopening carries its own political and economic challenges, Jen, which we're familiar with from some of the partial reopenings that we had from time to time over the last uh, 22 months or wh- whatever it is at this stage. Like Jack refers to the fact that we go back to what we had last summer, but we didn't have any open air rock concerts last summer. Electric picnic didn't happen. You know, those kinds of things didn't happen. We didn't have full opening. We're now starting to see an analysis from uh, various experts, both here and abroad. Very interesting piece by Guy Hedgeco, our correspondent in Spain at the weekend, about moving to the endemic stage of of this and what that means is you move on from the antigen tests and the PCR tests and everybody who has the symptoms has to isolate and close contacts and all the rest of that and you deal with this um, uh, um, with COVID as you currently do with flu um, and what I wonder about that is how do we get from where we are here now to that there Get rid of the COVID passes. Get rid of the restrictions on travel. Um, all the very, all the various other things. At what point are those things lifted, and are the necessary mechanisms put in place? For example, seasonal vaccines um, to cope with to cope with future outbreaks should they arise. That's complicated enough in itself, isn't it? And and pressures will start to emerge. I saw an interesting tweet from Patrick Tobin. It's a parliamentary question. I think he's putting in. Um, it, it runs as follows: asking the minister for health, given the high rates of transmission of COVID among people who are vaccinated, the falling number of cases and hospitalizations. when will the use of the COVID pass by the state be ended? And that becomes an increasingly pressing and reasonable question. It does, uh, especially in the context of our, you know, high vaccination rate, which we've heard a lot about uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, in, in various debates. I think the answer to your question is that it's a long road um, out of this. This maybe, maybe is the beginning Um, of the end and that what we will see over the next couple of months is trying to disentangle our way of living from basically all of the different restrictions beyond the, you know, the 8pm. I mean, talking about the antigen testing, the PCR testing, all of the rules around self-isolation, all of that kind of stuff. You know, there's we aren't at, you know, the endemic stage now and there's been no indication that we'll be at endemic stage by March um, when we reach that, that will be a debate that will have to be had. And I think we're hearing that now about politicians asking about the COVID pass. Like you say, when will that be done away with? Um, I mean, the push, I think, from politicians like Potter Tobin will be to have that removed along with the other restrictions at the end of March. Um, but in terms of how we live with COVID, but without all of those other restrictions, it's, it's still a very open question and it's it's a question that I don't have the answer to to be quite honest with you um because I don't know what's going to happen I mean there's a debate as well about herd immunity there's some experts saying that we may reach herd immunity by March what does that mean for us does that effectively mean that the any of those restrictions self-isolation that they're meaningless um and you know 
that herd immunity, how long does that project into the future for? So it's very much an open question and there are difficulties. I mean, I, I suppose one of the biggest challenges for government will be if, you know, they remove all these restrictions, with which, which they clearly plan to do, what do they do when there's another wave, if there's another wave? Um, and, you know, will they press the panic button or will they decide to wait it out and, and see what happens? And I think one of the big puzzles uh, of the piece this year will be work that's ongoing at the moment in the Department of Health. And what they're looking at is um, our future vaccination programme. How does it work? Like, are we going to ask people to get a fourth booster? Um, what does the evidence internationally tell us about a fourth booster? I mean, there's, you know, some studies from Israel that aren't exactly overwhelmingly, you know, making the case for the fourth booster. So what they're trying to create this framework, basically, that maybe what we'll be looking at is a one jab a year situation, uh, you know, that is seasonality based towards the winter or whatever. And perhaps it's actually aimed at people who are at high risk or over 60 um, and that younger people might not be asked, but they haven't decided that. They're working on that framework now. And what that framework will also look to do is if there is another wave, like I mentioned, or another COVID situation, they can switch it back on the system, the vaccination system, test and trace, all of those things. So that we'll have this kind of um, nimble system whereby if there's a need for it, it can switch back on immediately rather than what happened last uh, uh, October, November, if you remember, they wound down all their different bodies. And then next of all, we had this wave and the uh, criticism from the opposition was, you know, why didn't you have this system in place? Why weren't you ready to go? You know, why are we overwhelmed? So that's what they're looking to do now. It'd be really interesting to see the outcome of that work. That will tell us a lot about the future, not this, this year, but next year and, and the year after. I hope, we hope. Yeah. Indeed. Um, since we had some cross-podcast pollination at the start with Roisin Ingle, I should indulge in a little bit more at the end and give a plug to today's In the News Irish Times podcast, which speaks to Simon Carswell and to Christine Losher about exactly those issues. And there's some some interesting thoughts on, on exactly those subjects there as well. But that's it for us for today. Thanks to, to Jen, to Jack and to Dennis. Also, thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And we will be talking to you very soon. Uh, remember, you can contact us with your views or your questions at Irish Times dot com i beg your pardon let me can i do that again but that's it for today uh from us thanks to jen to jack and to dennis and to our producer declan conlon uh, we'll be back in your feed very soon but do remember you can contact us with your news and your views and your questions at politics podcast at irishtimes.com until the next time thanks very much indeed for listening <laughs> <laughs>